Good morning and afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's discussion of green cards and public charge, who could be denied based on benefit use. I'm Mark Greenberg. I'm a senior fellow at Migration Policy Institute. I'm here with my colleagues, Julia Gillette, senior policy analyst, and Randy Capps, who's director of research for the U.S. Immigration Program at MPI. We're here to talk about a new report that MPI has issued today concerning the public charge rule that became effective last week. First, a few housekeeping notes. If you have any technical problems during the call, um, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. We will have a Q&A at the end of the call, but it won't be a voice Q&A. So, Please type any questions into the Q&A box on the right side of your screen and send to the host, or you can email your questions to events at migrationpolicy.org, or you can tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPIDiscuss. Our plan for the webinar is that I will start with some background that may be quite familiar to everyone who's been following public charge developments closely. I'll then turn to Julia, who will talk about our new report, and then we're planning to allow more than half of the webinar hour for questions from participants to Julia and Randy and me. The report that we are releasing today is now available at the MPI website, um, and we hope um, everyone will find it to be a, a helpful report. Our focus today is on the new federal rule that was published last August and began to be implemented February 24th after the Supreme Court decided the rule should be allowed to be implemented while a number of legal challenges to it continue in the lower courts. The rule was issued by the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, USCIS. It principally concerns the standards that apply when an individual applies for adjustment of status, that is a green card. The Department of State has issued parallel guidance that applies when people are seeking admission overseas. Under longstanding federal law, persons can be denied admission to the United States or a green card if an official determines they are likely to become a public charge. There have been various standards applied over the years for what that means, but the rule published in August greatly expands who can be denied a green card based on being found likely to become a public charge. The rule lists a set of benefits and says that officials should determine that an applicant will be likely to become a public charge if at any future point the applicant is likely to use one or more of these benefits. The list is comprised of federal, state, or local cash assistance, benefits from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, or food stamps, non-emergency Medicaid for adults other than pregnant women, and federal public housing and housing voucher assistance. The rule says that in deciding if someone is likely to use one or more of the benefits in the future, officials should look at the totality of circumstances. That should include looking at the applicant's age, health, family status, assets, resources and financial status, and education and skills. Some factors will be treated as positive, others as negative. As part of that process, 
officials are directed to look at current and past benefit use since the rule became effective, or in the case of cash assistance, any past benefit use. So the focus is on whether someone is considered likely to use benefits in the future. The decision is required to be based on looking at multiple factors, and current or past benefit use is one part of what officials will be looking at. With that as background, I want to emphasize three key points about the rule. First, many people may be denied green cards as a result of the rule, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. Second, there's already evidence of significant chilling effects on a broad range of benefits and services. And third, while many people may be denied green cards, very few will be denied green cards on the basis of public benefits use. So I'll talk about the first two points, then turn to Julia for the principal focus of today's webinar, um, who and how many people may be denied based on benefits use. So first, over time, implementing this rule may have profound effects on who gets admitted to the United States or gets a green card and could result in a very sharp reduction in legal immigration to the United States. In 2018, MPI did an analysis looking at the characteristics of recent green card holders and found 69% of them had at least one negative factor, 43% had at least two negative factors, 19% had at least three negative factors that could put them at risk of denial of a green card. MPI also found that while applicants from all countries would be placed at greater risk of denial, the impacts would be much more severe for applicants from Mexico and Central America, where fully 60% of recent green card holders had at least two negative factors, applicants from the Caribbean, where 48% had two or more negative factors. Because the rule doesn't say exactly how officials should weigh the factors, we don't know what share of those at risk will actually be denied, but the key point here is that a very substantial share of applicants for green cards are likely to be at risk of denial. Second, the concern about chilling effects is the concern people will disenroll or not apply for benefits or services for which they're eligible because they fear receiving benefits will have an adverse effect on immigration status. Both past experience and reports from a broad range of program and service providers all over the country raise concerns that the chilling effects are already discouraging people from applying for not just the listed benefits but also others, and that families fearful of consequences will be afraid to enroll citizen children and other family members in programs. The clearest evidence chilling effects have already been occurring comes from an Urban Institute study finding that 14% of adults and 21% of low-income adults in families with immigrant members said they or a family member avoided using non-cash benefits in 2018 for fear of risking future green card status. There's only limited administrative data available at this point about program participation, but just last week, New York City reported significant drops in WIC enrollments in neighborhoods with higher numbers of non-citizens and disproportionate drops in SNAP applications by non-citizens. The evidence that chilling effects are so extensive makes it particularly important to appreciate the third point, 
that while many people may be denied green cards under the rule, very few will be denied on the basis of having received public benefits. Helping people understand this point may be an important part of efforts to mitigate the chilling effects of the rule. And with that, I'll turn to Julia to talk about the new MPI analysis. Great, thanks, Mark. So Mark has explained that the public charge rule has a forward-looking portion that looks at whether someone is likely to use public benefits in the future, and it also has a backward-looking portion that looks at current or prior public benefits use. I'll be talking now on who could be put at risk by that backwards-looking test. And the bottom line is most people who are applying for green cards who will be put through a public charge test are not eligible for public benefits in the United States. Ever since federal welfare legislation in 1996, mostly only U.S. citizens and green card holders are eligible for federally funded public benefits. And green card holders often have to wait five years to become eligible. This Venn diagram shows the overlap of people who may be eligible for benefits and may be put through a public charge test in the future. On the right side are people eligible for public benefits in the United States if they meet other eligibility requirements, U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those admitted on a humanitarian basis, such as refugees and people granted asylum. On the left side are people who may apply for a green card in the future, such as temporary workers, students on a student visa, and some unauthorized immigrants who find a path to a green card. The overlap between these two groups is very small, and in a minute I'll tell you exactly how small we think it is. But who is in that overlap? That there are three groups of people who may have a future path to a green card that's subject to a public charge test and who can access public benefits before getting that green card. So the first is certain green card holders could be put through a public charge test when they re-enter the country. This primarily affects people who leave the U.S. for more than six months. Second, there are some non-citizens in a set of uncommon statuses that can access federally funded public benefits before getting a green card, and I'll explain next who those groups are. And third, some states provide state-funded cash assistance to non-citizens without green cards, which I will also explain. So in terms of green card holders, um, in a very limited set of circumstances, they may face a public charge test. This is primarily if they leave the U.S. for more than six months. And we don't know how many people tend to do this, but presumably going forward, most people would try to avoid leaving the U.S. for such a long period of time, although it may be difficult for some people to avoid that. The second group is non-citizens in uncommon statuses who can access federally funded public benefits. So who's in this group? There are Haitian entrants, Haitian nationals who are paroled into the United States or come as asylum seekers or in other ways. There are Cuban entrants, Cuban nationals who enter the country primarily as asylum seekers. If Cubans are paroled into the United States, they can adjust to a green card through the Cuban Adjustment Act and would not be subject to a public charge test. Parolees are nationals of other countries who are paroled into the U.S. and they become eligible for some federally funded public benefits after being in the U.S. for at least one year. DHS has broad authority to parole people into the U.S. for compelling humanitarian or other reasons. People granted withholding of removal are also in this list. Withholding of removal is offered to some people who are not eligible for asylum, but show a greater than 50% chance of being persecuted in their home countries. Certain citizens of Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, or Palau, who can lawfully reside and work in the United States under the Compact of Free Association are included. And then there are two groups that may have very few, if any, people in them. People who obtain temporary legal status under the 1986 
Immigration Reform and Control Act, but never adjusted to a green card, and lawfully present members of the Hmong and Lao communities that helped the U.S. during the Vietnam War, but never obtained a green card, although most people from these countries who helped the U.S. came in as refugees instead. Adding up the best available data on people in these various statuses, we estimate that there are at most about 133,000 people in these situations. And these are people who have no direct path to a green card. They could only apply for a green card and then be put through the public charge test if they have a family member or an employer who could sponsor them and they otherwise qualify for our permanent immigration to the United States. And many people may never find that path and they may never face a public charge test. Also, many of these people may never receive any public benefits, even though they're potentially eligible, and even if they meet other income eligibility and other requirements, they may not access the benefits. And then finally, who's in this third group? Um, Non-citizens who receive state or locally funded cash assistance. So there are 17 states that provide state-funded cash assistance to some groups of non-citizens that do not have green cards. We estimate there are about 34,000 people in this situation who are non-citizens, who don't have green cards, who aren't refugees or asylees, and who receive state-funded cash assistance. And we estimate this number using the American Community Survey with MPI's assignments of immigration status. And we exclude people who have U.S. citizen children who are likely reporting on their citizen children's benefits use rather than their own. So adding this 133,000 together with the 34,000, we think that at most, just 167,000 people could be in a position to fail the public charge test because of past or current public benefits use. And this is less than 1% of all non-citizens in the United States. Even this small number is likely an overestimate for several reasons. There is some overlap between the 133,000 in uncommon statuses and the 34,000 using state-funded cash assistance that we can't measure. Also, some will never find a path to a green card, or some might find a path that's exempt from the public charge test, like asylum, and some will never use public benefits. This all means that the vast majority of non-citizens in the U.S. should not worry that their receipt of public benefits could affect their immigration status under current rules. Most of the chilling effects we're seeing are because of a very understandable misreading of the public charge rule. Our public benefits rules and immigration rules are immensely complicated, and that makes it even more important for everyone talking with immigrant families to be clear about what does and doesn't count under the rule. Unless people are in the rare situation that I just discussed, they likely shouldn't need to worry about their public benefits use in terms of the public charge rule. Benefits agencies, service providers, and governments at all levels should be clear in communicating to immigrant families about which benefits are and are not included in the rule, whose benefits use is or is not included, and that the vast majority of non-citizens do not need to worry about the public charge impacts of benefits they're receiving. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there are some clear messages that can be communicated about about which benefits are and are not counted, and some of them are listed here. So Medicaid for children and pregnant women does not count under the public charge rule. State or locally funded benefits do not count except for cash assistance. Benefits not listed in the rule do not count. Benefits used by citizens, refugees, or asylees does not count. And benefits received before February 24, 2020, other than cash assistance, also does not count. And with that, I'm going to pass it over to Mark to lead the Q&A, and I look forward to your questions.
Th thanks very much, Julia. Um, and we understand there have been some technical issues. Um, we hope that they have been resolved. Um, if you are still having them, um, uh, you know, please please let us know. But we hope that they have been resolved. Um, so, so uh, um, I think my first question is uh, just to clarify, um, because you have talked about the small number of people who may be denied green cards based upon their actual benefit use. Uh, can you try to sort of fit this all together and talk a bit about sort of how people should think about that in the overall context of the rule? Sure. So as we've discussed, there's the forward-looking part of the public charge rule and the backward-looking part. When we say that the number um, when we talk about this small number, the less than 1%, we're talking about the backward-looking part of the rule, but many people could be subjected to a forward-looking test that will look at a wide variety of characteristics, their income, their age, their English language ability, their family status, their income, and that could have really big immigration impacts, as Mark said. So on the one hand, the backward-looking part could have a small impact, but the forward-looking test could have really big impacts on our immigration system. Sure. And Randy, anything you'd want to add? <coughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just based on the, the, the earlier report we issued um, about this versus this report, obviously there are clearly two different messages. A huge percentage of people in the U.S. are trying to adjust their green card status. Um, you know, maybe more than half have at least a, a, a neg another negative factor that's not current benefits use. Whereas, like, current benefits use is more like maybe 1% to 2% of those who might apply. So it really um, means that, it, that people should be thinking about the other factors that might work against them uh, much more so than their actual benefits use. Thank you. So um, let me ask several um, questions that have, that have come in. Um, uh, one is, Julia, you um, talked about people who have green cards who leave the country for at least six months. Um, and we've gotten a question about how is leaving for more than six months defined? Is it six consecutive months or is it being away uh, for six months in a year? My understanding is that it's six consecutive months, that if somebody leaves the United States for six months at a time and then they come back they could be subjected to the public charge rule when they re-enter the United States. And I think more specifically, it's at least 180 days in a row. Thanks. Okay. Um, so, uh, next question. Um, a state provides federal funds to employers to assist in upgrading skills of the workforce. Um, this is actually California through its employment training panel. So, would LPRs that participate in this federally funded training be affected by the public charge rule? So, as we mentioned, benefits that are not directly listed in the public charge rule would not count in the public charge rule, or their use would not count in the public charge rule. So, you know, adult education, English programs, this training program that you mentioned, none of those are listed in the public charge rule. And in fact, getting more educational attainment, more training, certifications, improving one's English ability could help in the forward-looking part of the test. So there's, there should be no public charge problems with accessing these types of programs. 
And additionally, per that question, if they already have a green card, it doesn't matter um, unless they leave the country for six months. The charge, the, the public charge test is not going to apply to them if they're already LPRs. And and the the one thing that I would add is just in thinking about this question or, or others, um, uh, it's the someone who is participating in such an uh, employment program. Um, it's not going to count against them for purposes of the public charge rule. There may be a bunch of other ways in which they are affected by the public charge rule, but the participation in the employment training program is not going to be a negative factor in that process. Um, a next question. Uh, can you explain Cuban entrants and Cuban parolees a bit more um, the, the person sending the question said, I thought they would be eligible for a green card. If they're not, do they just remain in the U.S. as an entrant or a parolee? So Cubans who are paroled or admitted to the United States after a year of residence can adjust to a green card through the Cuban Adjustment Act. An adjustment through the Cuban Adjustment Act does not subject somebody to a public charge test. However, if they came into the country as an asylum seeker or through means other than being paroled or admitted in, they're not eligible for adjustment under the Cuban Adjustment Act. So in that case, they may be applying for asylum. If they're granted asylum, then they wouldn't be subject to a public charge test. But if they are in the United States and they're not granted asylum and they find a family member or employer or somebody to sponsor them for a green card, that's where a public charge test could come into effect. And there could be people who are in the United States for periods of time as Cuban entrants who do not have a green card and don't have a path to a green card. Thank you. Um, so we're getting several questions which are basically to the effect of, is all this written down somewhere? Um, and, and I think the thing to emphasize is that what we're presenting today is in the commentary that was published today on the MPI website. Uh, MPI has done a set of publications about public charge over these last several years. Um, that are accessible at the MPI website, which we'll have a link to at the very end of the presentation. And I should say the broader um, public charge test that Mark uh, gave the figures for early on that slide, that's a 2018 publication about, um, I, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's the something along the lines of the immigration effects of the public charge rule. Um, so there's a lot more on the broader test and the factors in that test in that earlier publication. Yes. Uh, so a next question, would a non-citizen receiving in-state tuition under a tuition equity policy count as receiving a cash benefit and thus trigger um, counting uh, for use of public benefits under the rule? Um, no, education benefits generally are not included in the public charge uh, test. And, um, uh, and I agree with that. Um, and, and would just add, uh, it's a very specific list of benefits as, uh, as, you know, as we've noted, um, the list is laid out in the rule. If something is not in the list, it's not going to count as a public benefit, and on the cash side, it's not 
any cash, it's cash assistance for income maintenance. So that will include federal cash assistance such as TANF, temporary assistance for needy families, or supplemental security income. It will also include state or local cash assistance, but it's cash assistance for income maintenance. Um, a next question, um, what about undocumented persons accessing prorated housing assistance? In general, if the assistance is prorated, that is that the immigrant who is applying for a green card is not receiving it, this would apply to food stamps as well in a prorated household. If that benefit is only for other members of the household who are citizens, then it would not count towards the public charge test. It's only when that individual who's applying for a green card is listed as the beneficiary in the program that it counts for the test. We've also been asked um, if we have estimates of the numbers of undocumented persons that would be affected by this rule. And uh, uh, let me reframe that a little more broadly to just ask, um, uh, would either of you like to discuss how are undocumented persons or unauthorized persons affected by the rule? So in general, I mean, unauthorized immigrants are not eligible for the federally funded public benefits listed in the public charge rule. And the great majority of unauthorized immigrants are not eligible for state or locally funded cash assistance where they live. Um, there are some categories of people, it depends really how you define unauthorized immigrant, whether you consider somebody who's in one of those lists of categories that I detailed as an unauthorized immigrant because they're um, in some kind of temporary humanitarian status. So there could be a small number of people, depending on how you define it, who are unauthorized immigrants who are able to access state or local cash assistance, but that's generally because they have some kind of humanitarian situation. The great majority of unauthorized immigrants would not be eligible for any of the public benefits listed in the rule. Well, I would, would like to add to that that generally speaking, um, those are lawfully present categories. So if someone's considered not lawfully present, uh, truly unauthorized, by and large, they're not gonna be eligible and additionally, the other thing to think about is that unauthorized immigrants who cross the border illegally or without inspection, uh, it's very hard for them to apply for green cards at all. Even if they have a family member to sponsor them, they are barred for a certain number of years. They have to leave the country for a certain number of years to apply. Um, there were more hardship exceptions to that under the prior administration, but this administration's kind of made that process, again, much more difficult. So um, visa overstays, who are now something like 40% or so, the unauthorized immigrants, may apply through family members for green cards. But again, they're not going to be eligible hardly ever for, for these benefits. But, but people who cross the border illegally, it's going to be very hard for them to have a path to a green card at all. A next question, should non-citizens who are renewing their green cards be worried about their future use of public benefits? No, there's nothing in the rule about renewing green cards. Again, if somebody already has a green card, the only time that they would have to officially be readmitted, and in which case this inadmissibility test in the public charge rule would be applied, is if they leave the country for 180 days in a row or more. 
And just to, to emphasize, all this turns on whether the person with a green card is being treated as seeking admission to the country. Correct. So an important distinction between that and getting a green card renewed. A couple of questions about SNAP. Um, is there a distinction between children that are U.S. citizens with non-U.S. citizen parents versus children that are themselves um, in alien status? And would SNAP benefits affect the green card applications of non-U.S. citizen children? So in the public charge test, it's looking at public benefits receipt by the person who's applying for a green card. So in a mixed status family where the children are U.S. citizens who are receiving SNAP, if the parents are non-citizens who then seek a green card, their children, their citizen children's use of SNAP would not count in the public charge test. However, if there was a child who was a non-citizen who was somehow eligible for SNAP in the United States before getting a green card, and that child was applying for a green card, their use of SNAP before getting the green card could be considered in the public charge test. A next question. Um, does a public charge impact LPRs who are trying to naturalize? In general, no. Um, at the time of naturalization, USCIS reserves the right to question whether somebody was properly granted their green card in the first place under the rules that were in place at the time. Um, however, USCIS says quite clearly that public benefits use as a green card holder will not be taken to say that the person shouldn't have gotten their green card on public charge grounds. So essentially, at the naturalization stage, public benefits use as a green card holder will not be considered. We've gotten a question to ask us to describe in brief um, how the public charge rule changed from the time of the initial leak and early 2018 to now. Uh, and the questioner notes that the initial leaked document probably had a lot to do with driving chilling effects. And uh, I can respond on this one. Uh, the, in early 2018, uh, there were actually a couple of leaked drafts early in the year, and uh, then a proposed rule later in the year, and then a final rule this year. So there have been a number of important changes as it went through the process. On the benefit side, probably the most important is, at least based on what we can see from the leaked drafts, at the beginning the administration had been considering applying and counting benefits, considering any means-tested benefit, um, means-tested benefits that would be income-based. They narrowed that when they developed the proposed rule, and then they narrowed it further in the final rule with a particularly important change between the proposed and the final is that under the proposed, they would have looked at Medicaid usage for anybody, and under the final, they excluded Medicaid usage by children and pregnant women. So it is right that the list of benefits got narrowed over time, that it's the specific list of benefits that we've talked about today. This is still a vastly larger group of benefits affecting far more people 
than under the standards that were in effect before these rules. But it's right that um, based upon the leaked draft and all the conversations back then and all the uncertainties about which benefits would or wouldn't be included, that that likely contributed to chilling effects. Yeah, and I would just add that um, the chilling effects aren't just due to the specific rule and the specific benefits listed in the rule. It, it, the fact that the rule has changed so much, that there was a healthcare proclamation last year that was a lot broader, that they've, you know, they've announced that they may do a public charge deportability rule. There are immigration operations in communities in the U.S. on a more frequent basis than what we saw two or three years ago. And there's a general climate right now of fear, I think, in immigrant communities that the, the, the broad package, if you will, of immigration policies and rhetoric have contributed to. So just because the rule itself has narrowed, and, and, and really what we're trying to do with this call is reduce the chilling effects fear um, by explaining how much the, the, that benefit list has narrowed and to the few people it applies to, it doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't other reasons for immigrants to be fearful of interaction with government authorities. Thanks. So, so I should say, at this point, um, we've got a lot of questions. Um, uh, we may not have time for all of them. We'll try to get through as many as we can, and we'll try to respond as concisely as we can um, to try to, uh, to get through more. And the next question is, um, does the public charge impact current green card holders who are trying to seek health care, such as under the Affordable Care Act? Um, and the questioner notes, I know a lot of people who are trying to naturalize as citizens but are afraid of being labeled as public charge and haven't applied. So there are three parts to this. Um, people who have green cards for lawful permanent residents will not be subjected to the public charge rule, so they shouldn't need to worry about their public benefits use, with the caveat that if they plan to leave the United States for more than 180 days, their public benefits use could be considered when they re-enter. The second part is, as we said, public benefits use as a green card holder should not affect the naturalization process. And then the third part of this is that um, health care access through the Affordable Care Act through the exchanges is not listed in the public benefits rule. So even if somebody accesses health insurance through the exchanges and gets um, subsidies or tax benefits because of that, that would not affect a public charge determination. Okay, next question. Will a large number of people be denied for other reasons like English proficiency and age, and if so, which ones? Yes, and that's the 2018 report uh, on our website um, that uh, Mark uh, showed a slide about earlier, our estimate is that close to two-thirds of people overall have at least one negative factor and close to half have two, um, with education English proficiency being, being the, among the most common, if not the most common, and that the share of people with those characteristics that could be considered negative is much higher for immigrants from Latin America. It's a mix in, 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 in Asia, you know, for instance, uh, Many um, LPRs from China have limited English proficiency, and that will work against them, whereas you know, most from India would, would be able to speak English, so it varies from country to country. It's actually relatively low from immigrants uh, from Africa who, by and large, are better educated, 
and uh, have uh, higher English proficiency and, and lowest for those from Europe. See, I think the, the only thing that, that I would add to it, um, and I talked about this pretty briefly in my initial remarks, is that um, it's this totality of circumstances, it's looking at this set of factors, um, looking at positives and negatives, some heavily weighted, some not, it is frankly extremely unclear how officials are going to work through this list and come to a yes or no decision. And in the guidance so far, there is not something that makes that clearer, and so the tremendous concerns about who is at risk are precisely because it is so unclear of how the decisions will actually get made by officials once they look across this broad range of factors. Uh, a next question. Uh, the state of Washington provides food benefits for ineligible SNAP recipients. Would that food benefit count in the public charge determination? Right, so state or locally funded benefits, whether it's food assistance or medical assistance, would not count under the public charge rule. The only state or locally funded benefits that do count is cash assistance but state or locally funded or privately funded food assistance or medical assistance would not count in the public charge test. And a follow-up also about Washington. The state of Washington does provide a TANF equivalent grant to PRUCAL recipients, persons permanently residing under color of law, and non-TANF immigrants, and would that count? Yes, so that would count. So state-funded cash assistance to people who do not yet have green cards um, would count under the public charge test if those PRUCOLs or others were able to find a path to a green card through a family or employer sponsor and otherwise qualify for that green card. They then would be put through the public charge test and that use of state-funded cash assistance could count against them. A next question. How does the public charge affect persons who only have work authorization but not a green card? And I think that's not just about use of benefits, but kind of more broadly, how does it affect people with work authorization? So anybody who's applying for a green card, um, unless they're applying through an exempt category, like asylum or refugee status or the Cuban Adjustment Act, would be put through the public charge test when they apply for that green card. That would include people who are in the United States and have access to work authorization through something like temporary protected status or through DACA or as an asylum seeker, other means where they have that temporary work authorization. If they're able to find a path to a green card, they would be put through that public charge test when getting that green card. Again, unless they were getting the green card as an asylee or as a Cuban Adjustment Act adjuster or something like that. A next question is whether we're aware of any legal challenges to the green card reentry aspect of the public charge rule. Uh, and I would say here, um, I'm not aware of any. Um, if any of our listeners are, please send us a note and uh, let us know. But when USCIS did the rule, basically what they said uh, was that uh, in that situation, when you've been out of the country for 180 days, you're treated as an applicant 
um, when you seek readmission, and that's their basis. But uh, I'm not aware of any legal challenges on that. But that said, there are legal challenges that are pending on the public charge rule more generally. So the Supreme Court has allowed the public charge rule to take effect through USCIS while those legal challenges are pending. So we are still waiting to see how the courts rule on public charge more generally. And, and just to um, build on that, uh, the, when the Supreme Court made its decision, it was not making a decision on the merits of this issue. What it was saying is that it would allow the public charge rule to go forward and be implemented while the legal challenges were continuing, and they are continuing in multiple courts across the country. A next question. For a pregnant, undocumented person that has public health benefits for herself, will that have an impact on her if she ever tries to apply for a green card? So Medicaid for pregnant women is not counted under the public charge rule. If um, this pregnant woman who does not yet have a green card had access to any of the other benefits that are listed in the public charge rule that could be considered in the public charge determination when she applies for a green card, but Medicaid for pregnant women and also for children is not counted in the public charge rule. And additionally, you know, depends on how you define public health benefits. Anyone who gets a public health benefit, and this is really important to think about in the current context, you know, anyone who gets general public health benefits that are not Medicaid, going to community health center, going in for immunizations, going in for screening for anything, um, that doesn't count under the rule. And it's only Medicaid, and as Julia mentioned, um, pregnant women are exempt from that in the rule. So we, we've now got several which I will ask and um, don't know if colleagues will be able to answer. But, uh, but, but if, if not, I mean, we will uh, follow up. But um, this next one, how does this affect the future status for youth who have significant lifelong needs, secured special J, J visas, um, and LPR status? through child welfare services will likely need public benefits as an adult. I think that that's unclear. I mean, this is definitely, there are gonna be some of these less common statuses um, where people will really need to consult with attorneys to, to think about this. Um, people who do receive public benefits and then go on to adjust through a non-exempt uh, category, like through a, uh, a relative um, or an employer, could be subject to the public charge test. But, but I believe for, for the special immigrant juvenile status, the SIJ, um, if they're getting a green card through that pathway, that would be considered humanitarian. The same as a, a T, which is a trafficking, or a U, victim of crime or asylee or refugee. So uh, my understanding is that the, the SIJ group would be exempt. Couple more. Um, if a VAWA applicant marries a citizen while VAWA is pending, will they be subject to public charge? Yeah, again, this is one of those where they would really need to consult with an attorney. Um, 
you know, it, 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 the pathway to green card through a spouse in general would be subject to the public charge test. I think regardless of whether or not the person's in a humanitarian status when they apply, but I think that's going to be a gray area um, for sure. Um, and some of the statuses that we mentioned earlier, I think too, are, are going to be are going to fall into that gray area. Um, but if they get the green card based on VAWA itself, it should be humanitarian, similar to SIJ and, and um, asylum and refugee status. Next one, how are parolees who are in removal status affected by the rule? Are they only eligible for refugee benefits for the eight months? So parolees um, after one year of residence in the United States are, are eligible for some public benefits. Um, Cuban and Haitian entrants by and large are eligible for the same public benefits that refugees are eligible for. So in some cases that could be an eight month limited benefit. It may depend on the local rules where they live, which benefits they're eligible for and how long those last. Parolees who are, um, who are not Cuban or Haitian entrants, they're eligible for, as I mentioned, some federally funded public benefits after one year of residence, but those are not necessarily the same benefits that refugees would get. So it depends a bit whether this person is a Cuban and Haitian national or whether they're from another country as well, what benefits would be available to them. And let me just make just a, a quick um, observation and then we'll go to another question. So some of the questions that we're getting um, do involve very specific issues for very specific statuses. And it will be crucial to have the capacity locally to answer those questions. At the same time, while the rule is pretty complicated, for most of the questions that most people will have, the answers will be very straightforward. And as Julia talked about when she was presenting, the answers around naturalization and around the LPRs and around refugees and asylees and around children um, are very straightforward answers for the vast bulk of people who will have them. And what it really underscores is the capacity locally to be able to both address the most common questions and then have appropriate people for referral for the less common questions that, that arise. Uh, next question is a broader one. How will public charge impact persons who are reapplying for green cards and who access medical services. And what I would ask is, because we've gotten a bunch of questions about medical services, can you give kind of a big picture answer around public charge and medical services? And again, on this one, I don't know whether it means reapplying or renewing, right? I mean, if, if somebody's renewing a green card they already have, um, then the public charge rule doesn't apply for them, again, unless they leave the country for at least 180 days in a row. Um, if they're um, reapplying, um, meaning that they were denied, um, and, and they're doing a new application for an initial green card, then the public charge inadmissibility rule um, would apply to them, and it would depend on what type of medical benefit they're using. Uh, again, with Medicaid, 
being the only medical benefit listed in the rule, and if they're children or pregnant women, then um, Medicaid would their Medicaid use wouldn't be considered when they you know reapply for that initial green card. Also, if they're applying for reapplying for that initial green card, um, and they use another public health or health-related benefit like um, some screening um, immunizations or say women, infant, children, you know, nutritional uh, assistance, that would not count because those benefits are not listed in the rule. Next question. Can you explain the use of public housing and its impact on the applicant? Does the public housing benefit affect all members of the household? And how about transitional housing and shelters and other emergency assistance that aren't federal? Okay, so, I mean, we had a similar question to this earlier about prorated housing, similar to prorated food stamps or SNAP. If the housing, um, if, the, if the applicant is not listed as the recipient uh, of the assistance, if the assistance is going to other family members who are U.S. citizens or green card holders and it's a prorated housing benefit, then it, it would not count. If it's public housing and that person is listed on it, then it would. Um, if it's not federally funded housing assistance, it would not count. Only federally funded housing assistance counts. And I actually don't know the answer if it's homeless transitional federal, uh, federally funded housing. I, that's not specifically listed, is it, Mark? Um, it, is, it is not, and we ought to um, just double check with expert colleagues, but it's, uh, it's right that it's specifically listed federal housing assistance, not all federal housing assistance. Okay. Which is public housing and housing choice vouchers or Section 8 vouchers. Right. So we're at 155. We'll try to get another couple of questions in, um, and then we'll have to um, bring to a close. And so if a client has applied for removal of condition, then leave while pending, um, pending the 1751? Um, so I'm, I'm reading this question. Uh, <laughs> she goes to shelter, gets a housing through Section 8. So if somebody has a green card, whether or not they're removing the condition on the green card, my understanding would be that um, it depends whether or not they leave the country for more than 180 days. If there is a green card holder who does leave the country for more than 180 days, um, they could be subjected to the public charge rule, and I think you know they would put, be put through the totality of circumstances test, including their income and, and everything else, and public benefits could be considered, public benefits receipt could be considered in that as well. Are there published standards for how risks will be weighed, for instance, on how education level will be weighed against income? Uh, no. I mean, we've looked at the manual, we've looked at the form, we've, you know, you've seen, read the rule, and, um, you know, the, the form asks for everything. They want information on every benefit used, they want information on education income, all these factors, and the rule says that they'll be weighed. As Marcus said several times, the totality of circumstances is a weighing of all these factors. But like, when one, the only thing that weigh more are the highly weighted 
factors in the rule itself, one of which is use of public benefits for a year or more in the last three. Um, and a positive heavily weighted factor is having more than two and a half times the poverty level income. But other than a few heavily weighted factors like that, everything else, you know, the rule and the implementing instructions are, are pretty vague as to how the officers should waive these factors. And, and that leaves the officers with a lot of discretion. We'll have, I think, time for one last question. And let me ask what's potentially a pretty broad one. But uh, the, in the current context of great concerns around coronavirus um, and the importance of accessing needed health care and accessing needed screening, what's the connection between that and the public charge rule? And uh, what's the guidance or advice you can provide in light of that? Um, so as we've discussed a bit, you know, use of Medicaid for non-pregnant adults would count under the public charge rule, but use of other health insurance, if it's funded by the state or locally or subsidized health insurance through the exchanges, would not count. And further, accessing medical care should not have public charge implications. If somebody goes to the emergency room, if somebody goes to a community health center, if somebody goes to the local clinic, whether or not that's a free or reduced price clinic or they're paying out of pocket, that should not have public charge implications. And so, you know, neither should somebody going to get tested for coronavirus or for anything else. So there are a lot of things that should not have public charge implications. Really the only piece related to healthcare, related to health would be for non-pregnant adults accessing federally funded Medicaid. Thanks. So there are a bunch of questions we weren't able to get to. Uh, the, we hope that this has been helpful and informative. We hope the commentary will be helpful uh, as you read it. The commentary is now up on the website. The audio from today's webinar, along with the slides, will be uh, available on the website next week. For any reporters on the call who have further questions, please contact Michelle Middlestaff at 202-266-1910. We've got on this last uh, overhead a, a link to receive MPI updates and where you can sign up to do so. So again, thanks everybody very much for joining in today and we hope it's been helpful to you. Thank you.